seats. Hey kids, Miss Jarvis is over there. She's ready to take you out to children's worship. You can head on out to be with her. Okay, so um, we've been looking over the last uh, several weeks and months at uh, the Paul's epistle, Second uh, Corinthians, and today we're up to chapter 8. And uh, let me just uh, put, uh, say a little bit, we'll put it in broader context in a few minutes, but uh, last week we talked about the fact that Paul is rebuking and calling on uh, the church in Corinth to repent of their broken relationship with him. And then chapters 8 and 9 kind of take off in a whole different direction. And he speaks uh, in chapters 8 and 9 about uh, the issue of, of a special offering uh, that the church is participating in uh, for uh, the church in Jerusalem. And we'll unpack that a little bit more. So uh, we're going to read uh, uh, all of uh, 24 verses of chapter uh, 8 this morning so you get a sense of this. There'll be a couple of times while I read this that I... We'll need to stop and just take a minute to to talk about uh, uh, the issues that are uh, happening, just so there's there's no confusion. But uh, today we're going to read Second Corinthians chapter eight, verses one through twenty-four. The text is in the bulletin, also up on the screens behind me. This is God's word, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, that's that's quite a verse, quite a mouthful, right? Uh, uh, and, and quite a set of conflicting pictures there, right? Because they're in a severe test of affliction, but in the midst of that, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, something, two things that we would never put together, probably, extreme joy or uh, abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, much less that uh, we would expect poor people to be generous, right? So uh, keep that in mind as we, as we work through, as we work through this text. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. In other words, uh, he's stunned that not only did they give, but they asked Paul for the opportunity in their poverty to give, right? So accordingly, we urge Titus that at just that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, 
who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, who put it into the heart of Titus, the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching and of the, of the gospel. And not only that, he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. Now, it's interesting that Paul says that along with Titus, he's sending Titus to pick up the uh, offering that they're collecting. He says, with him, we're sending him the brother, along with him, the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel, uh, which is pretty ironic because, uh, you know, Paul's been criticized that he's not a very good preacher. Uh, and yet he's speaking here of someone's reputation. Uh, scholars think it's either uh, Apollos, who's mentioned later uh, uh, in the New Testament, or perhaps even it's possible for some people, I believe, that it's Luke, uh, the writer of uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we're sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So, so what's happening here is Paul um, is, is talking about this offering, and he's talking about uh, the necessity of generosity by the church in Corinth, and he spends this last portion of the text that we're not going to spend a lot of time on today assuring the people in Corinth that, that Titus is on his way and that this actually this team of people are on the way to collect the offering, and they're trustworthy, that they'll make sure... It gets where it needs to go. So what's what's going on here? What is what is happening? Because Paul has not really spoken much about generosity. He's not talked very much about giving up to this point in time. Most of what he's done in the first uh, seven chapters of this book is talk about the gospel and talk about his authority and his reputation that has been attacked there in Corinth. And now he is going to talk about uh, 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 this uh, well, the grace of generosity. So you have to you have to get the context for chapter eight and chapter nine. At the end of First Corinthians, which was written a, a year to eighteen months uh, earlier, Paul writes this. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up 
as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So here's the situation. What what has gone on in the church in Jerusalem is that apparently they're needy. And uh, we know that there were a lot of poor people in the church of Jerusalem. In fact, we know that there were a lot of widows uh, in the church in Jerusalem. The whole the whole part uh, at the beginning of the book of Acts about the establishment of the uh, office of deacon uh, was because of the necessity of administering uh, the daily kind of collection of food and the distribution of that for all the widows that were there uh, in the in the church in Jerusalem. Now, a couple of things to keep in mind about this, and we'll come back to this in a few minutes. Primarily, the church in Jerusalem is made up of Jewish believers, and primarily the uh, the church in Corinth and Galatia and Macedonia is made up of Gentile believers. And so Paul, in his uh, uh, zeal for the churches, is urging upon these Gentile churches to set aside uh, on the first day of the week, and the first day of the week, by the way, is today, not tomorrow, it's not Monday, right? Um, uh, in, in our culture, Sundays, we view often Sunday as the last day of the week, don't we? You're nodding your heads. You know, that's not the way the Bible looks at it. The way the Bible looks at it is, is that Sunday's the first day of the week, that they were, as they got, uh, got up and got ready to go to church to set aside whatever they were going to give and make sure that they had it ready to give when they gathered for worship. Now, I don't know what your routine is on Sunday. I'd love to see it. I really do wish I had a camera, hidden camera in your houses to see what it's like and what it takes for you to get here, dressed and in your right mind. Um, when I, I was a kid, we got up early on Sunday mornings, a little earlier than we usually did because we had to take care of the animals uh, and and do the chores, those sorts of things before we uh, before we got to, uh, uh, ourselves together, ate breakfast, and went to church, just like what your kids do on uh, on, <laughs> on Sunday mornings, right? Um, and uh, we had a routine. Now, one of the things. Uh, uh, it, it, that I grew up with and a big part of our routine was uh, not only did we have to get up and do our chores, eat our breakfast, get cleaned up and get ready to go to church, we had to pass inspection by my dad before we went to church because we dressed up. You had to put on your coat and your tie, your Sunday clothes, because this is the only time we ever wore them, and better yet, your Sunday shoes. Now, why do I mention shoes? Because... Every single week, we polished our shoes. I, I cannot tell you the last time I polished a pair of shoes. Do people even do that anymore? Do they? I, can you get shoe polish? I don't know. I mean, uh, it is, it, it's, it's stunning to me to, to think about that. Who polishes their shoes anymore? I, I just, these, you know, you do. Good for you. You know what? When I scanned the crowd, if I was thinking, who in this crowd polishes their shoes? It'd be Barton Campbell. <laughs> Nothing else you polish there either, right, Barton? But uh, 
I think it's a, it was a remarkable thing because they didn't, my dad would not have us going to, uh, going to church with scuffed shoes. He wasn't going to have it. And so he would stand my brother and I up by the kitchen table as he was sitting there at the table and he would look us up and down and make sure that uh, we were set to go to church. And the other thing that my dad did every single Sunday while uh, we stood there at uh, the table while he was inspecting us was he pulled out his checkbook and he wrote his check for the offering every week, every week, never missed. Uh, I don't remember a whole lot about what the amount was on that, those checks, but it stood out to me that that was a routine, that that was something that he did every single Sunday. Now, now I'm not, I'm not, as I say that to you this morning, you know, we give in a myriad of ways today. Uh, some people give every week. Some people give every month. Some people never write a check. Some of you in here probably don't write checks. You click buttons and the money flies off where, wherever, wherever it's supposed to go, right? Wherever you want it to go. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm kind of a hybrid of that. Uh, I like uh, the discipline of having to sit down and write a check because it makes me think a little bit and pray a little bit, actually, about what I'm doing. So, um, uh, But it, it really doesn't matter. What, what Paul is getting at here is that he is saying to the churches there, uh, the, the Gentile churches, that every Sunday as they're getting prepared to worship, set aside what you made that week, a portion of what you made that week, and be ready to give that because he is preparing, uh, as he says here, to send a team of folks to travel through the areas where he's planted churches, take up the collection, gather it together, and then take it to Jerusalem to make sure it gets distributed to the needy people there. So between the time where this text has been written and then what he's saying here in chapters 8 and 9 has been about a year, a year and a half. And so there has been a, a beginning uh, to the collection there in Corinth. And now he is taking this opportunity to urge them to complete the work, to complete the gathering together of the offering, because he's about uh, to send his team of folks to come and collect it. Next slide, please, uh, Megan. So now in chapters 8 and 9, he's urging them to complete the offering once it's begun. And Paul's making clear how that offering will be administered. Now, one of the things that you might miss about this is this is a really bold thing to do in light of his strained relationship with the Corinthians. Right? He's just rebuked them. He's just challenged them about the fact that their relationship was broken, that, 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 that his, his uh, reputation had been tarnished. And yet, what is he doing? He is, he's right as he finishes talking to them about, I knew you would repent. I knew you would be zealous to have a restored relationship with me. He goes straight in now to challenging them and reminding them about the completion of the offering uh, for the poor uh, and the, the poor, the, the poor Christians, the poor church uh, that's in Jerusalem. That's a bold thing, right? That's a, that's a, a, that's a very profound thing about it. But, but the fact is what you have to see about this is, is that in the context and the way in which he's talking about this and the way in which he thinks about this, it's really not that bold at all. It is simply one other application uh, of the gospel and what he's doing. And let me just say, it is really unfortunate this morning that we're talking about this, uh, and we'll talk about it next week on the Sunday where, uh, we present the budget. And I, you can you can laugh at that if you want. The the problem with that is, I, trust me, I did not plan this. This just happened to work out this way, because 
the, the fact is, if you connect your giving simply to the meeting of a number at the bottom of a page, uh, you will have missed what this is about. And not only that, you will have settled for something very small. Very small. Because what Paul's getting at here, and, and one of the ways that is, is profound about this, and one of the things that runs through this text is that one of the big picture things to note about this, this, these two chapters, chapter 8 and 9, he never uses once any of the Greek words for money itself. Never. He never says the word money. He never says the word denarius. He never says the word shekel. He never, he never says any of that. He doesn't use that kind of language, but he talks a lot about grace. He talks a lot about joy. He talks a lot about love. And so what's going on here is not simply a number that he has in mind. He doesn't write to the, the, to the church at Corinth and says, Hey guys, remember a year ago when I told you to take up this offering for the poor in Jerusalem, you pledged X. Time to meet that pledge. He doesn't talk about it that way. He it, Rather, what he speaks to them about is he talks to them about grace and about joy and about love and how that manifests itself in our lives uh, in generosity and how generosity then manifests joy and grace and love, right? And I think that's a, that's a pretty powerful thing for us. You know, the one of the one of the things that uh, I I get questioned about a lot from people is how do I know when I've given enough? How do I know when I've given enough? Well, trust me, that there is no answer to that uh, because you're thinking about it all wrong. Uh, what what Paul wants people to see and what what he wants them to understand is to root their generosity in something bigger than a number. But that actually what he is shooting for here is not so much a collection, although he needs that collection and the poor saints in Jerusalem need it. But more than that, what he is shooting for is their joy. What he is shooting for is their love to be expanded. What he's shooting for is for their understanding of grace, their understanding of the cross, their understanding of the gospel to get bigger as they think about uh, taking up this offering. So next slide. So when people talk about grace in church circles, they're, just, they're referring usually simply to the undeserved love and power which God showers on people in bringing them to experience all that Jesus died and rose again to give them. And that's a powerful thing. It's a big thing. It is the, the biggest thing, the most important thing. But look at how the, he nuances grace here, because he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, right? He goes on to say, verse 6, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness, and, and we have a lot in common with the, the uh, Corinthian church because we're competent, just like them. We excel. He says to them, see that you excel also in this act of grace. This act of grace. So he's nuancing what, what grace is. Here he is referring to grace as something not just that God does in and for them, 
but something that he's doing through them. What does it mean that God gave this grace to the churches of Macedonia? The work of God in Christ is now causing these people who are afflicted and who are poor, probably experiencing some sort of economic persecution as a result of their identification with Christ. The work of God in Christ is now causing these people to be reckless in their generosity. He wants to see the same kind of thing happen to the Corinthians. He wants them to experience this grace in the same way. So what he's saying to the people, he's not trying to shame the people in Corinth. What he's saying is, look at the joy. Look at the excitement. Look at the work of Christ. Look, Look at how these people in Galatia and Macedonia are being renewed and changed by their generosity in the midst of their poverty. I want the same thing for you. I want that same experience of grace, that same understanding of the reality of the gospel coming your way. And I want it to be manifest now in your generosity to your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. In fact, he wants them to excel in this. What better way to demonstrate that grace has taken hold in their lives than for these predominantly Gentile churches give to the predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem? That's a, and that's something that can't be missed here, right? Because it's, it's not like that these, these people in Corinth and Galatia and Macedonia have a, 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 a racial or a cultural connection, uh, to the people in Jerusalem. What do we know about Gentiles and Jews in the, in the, in the New Testament? That there was a lot of enmity and there was a lot of work to be done, that there was a wall of hostility and a dividing wall that, that Jesus had to break down. And so part of what Paul's getting at here is to show the wonder and the, the supernatural power of the gospel that these Gentile uh, uh, Christians who probably have scant knowledge of the Old Testament uh, in, in any way, shape, or form are now in their poverty and in their struggle raising money, becoming generous for their Jewish believing brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. It's, it's a, it's a pretty powerful, uh, and, and profound thing for us to, 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 to see that. So this, this manifestation of the gospel is, and this, this generosity that they're showing gives evidence to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord of one church, that he is Lord of one people, and that these people belong to him, and though they may not have a lot in common culturally or racially, they belong to one another, and they're going to serve each other uh, in this way. And so it's 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 important for it's important for us um, uh, to see this. Now, um, one of the things that is so profound about this is is that uh, this generosity that is being uh, this that, that he's calling for. Um, is he doesn't give a specific number. He doesn't, he doesn't say this is what he's looking for. He simply wants people in response to the goodness of God, in response to the grace of God, to bear witness to that. And the way they'll bear witness to that is in giving. Uh, my dad grew up going to this little white clapboard church, uh, uh, in, uh, deep, deep in the uh, hollers in Tennessee called Little Valley Missionary Baptist Church. And, uh, I remember going there as a kid 
And uh, while I never saw anybody handling snakes in this church, it would not have been out of the realm of possibility, frankly. <laughs> yes, it, it's like that. It's hard to tell what's going on in there sometimes. Um, but I remember sitting with my, in fact, the, the last time my mom and dad went together several years ago, a lot of my family still goes there. A ton of my family's buried out in the yard out, outside the church. And so um, the last time my mom and dad went together as they were walking out of the church, my mom said to my dad, aren't you glad I got you out of this church? <laughs> so it's that kind of church, right? Um, I remember sitting with my dad on a Sunday night, a Sunday night service, and they were taking up the offering. And one of my cousins actually was the guy who was taking up the offering, and he was passing the basket around. He comes by my dad. My dad reaches in his wallet. He pulls out a $20 bill, and he puts it in the basket. And the guy goes back around. And as he's getting ready to come back up to the front of the church to present the, the offering, he stopped and leaned over to my dad and said, do you want change for that 20 Because they didn't get many $20 bills in the offering. Uh, and I, I was so disappointed that my dad said no. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's get some of that back. You know, uh, what do they need it for? Anyway, um, so the, so the, the, the response, what Paul wants, Pete, what he, what he wants, uh, the, the response that he wants here is for people simply to see and to understand their unity. But more than that, he wants them to see and understand their own, uh, uh, well, their own wealth and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. Because he says, right in the midst of this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Um, if you, if you struggle today to know whether you're generous enough, if your conscience troubles you, if the spirit convicts you, but you're left unclear about what to do about, about it, meditate on this verse. Just meditate and just think about what, what the great thing that Paul says here, right? Jesus Christ is God almighty. Uh, through whom the universe was made and who upholds all things by his power. He has, ex- he has existed as the glorious, perfect, and happy second person of the Trinity from all eternity. And it was from this infinite height that he performed the unimaginable condescension to be born in a cattle stall and to die on a criminal's cross in order that we might be made rich, not rich in money, but as verse 2 says, rich in joy rich in liberality, and as verse 8 implies, rich in love. That's a profound thing for us because what Paul understands here is is that when, when believers believe the gospel, when they hear and they see the great gift of Jesus Christ, when they understand the profound nature of the love of God and they see how Jesus, who had everything, gave that up to condescend to live our life, die our death, to rise again for us. That he did all of this, that he sacrificed all of that so that we, in turn, would be made rich in grace and mercy and love and in generosity, right? This is the grace of God that turns selfish people into joyful Givers. 
Now, you hear that word selfish, and you probably think, uh, that's not me. I, I know some selfish people, but that's not me. The reason verse 9 should take away our selfishness and make us joyful and generous is that it takes away the only basis for selfishness. And the basis for selfishness is the notion that giving less away and keeping more for ourselves will provide more happiness and fulfillment to our lives. Now, let me just say right here and now that there are some of you uh, who cannot give because of circumstances that are in your lives, difficulties, challenges, those sorts of things. Um, But what Paul's getting at here is he's challenging our thought uh, that holding on to what we have and believing that God is stingy and that he won't provide and believing that if I can just hold on to this little thing here, this, this will actually provide some, some fulfillment and some happiness is the pathway to joy. Note what Eugene Peterson says. This is a great quote at the beginning of the, of, uh, the bulletin. Giving is the action that was designed into us before our birth. Some of us try desperately to hold on to ourselves, to live for ourselves. We look so bedraggled and pathetic doing it hanging on to the dead branch of a bank account for dear life, afraid to risk ourselves on the untried wings of giving. We don't think we can live generously because we've never tried. But the sooner we start, the better, for we're going to have to give up our lives finally. You just leave it to Peterson to just cut to the chase there. And the longer we wait, the less time we have for the soaring and swooping life of grace. But verse 9 shows that God's purpose in sending his son was to create joyful, loving, generous givers. Now, if God values joyful, loving generosity so much as to give his beloved son to create it in his people, then we can be absolutely assured that when we are more generous, we will be more happy and more fulfilled because God is bound to work mightily for those whose behavior he values so highly. Um. Uh, on uh, Friday mornings at uh, 6.30, uh, I meet a group of guys every Friday at the Chick-fil-A on Pyram Road. And we've been doing this for a number of years. And um, when uh, we've gotten to know the folks who work there and they've gotten to know us, uh, every morning when I walk in, I go in, I say hi uh, to Miss Francis, who always takes my order. Actually, she doesn't take my order because... I walk in and I set my book on our table where we're going to meet. And by the time I get back to the counter, Miss Francis has my order. And I know Miss Francis's uh, children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. And she asks me to pray for her regularly. And every time Miss Francis hands me my fruit cup, and my coffee, because I am the old man in the group. They all eat the cheesy, greasy goodness, but I eat fruit and drink my coffee. I say, thank you, Miss Francis. And she says, my pleasure. My pleasure. My joy. 
Now, I know they're trained to do that, right? But what Paul is saying to us is there's pleasure in giving. There's joy in giving. Why? Because Paul's appeal is entirely shaped by the good news. The love that he wants the Corinthians to demonstrate is nothing other than the love of Christ that they have come to know and experience. The Corinthian doing is to arise entirely from what Christ has done for them. And this not as mere gratitude, not as mere gratitude, right? Which is, which is a fine motivation for giving. But Paul's shooting for something even bigger than gratitude here, okay? Um, This not as mere gratitude, but as a fresh experience of the grace of Christ. Paul's joyful thanksgiving drives home the confession of God as the unqualified giver. So the Corinthian believers, the believers in Galatia, the believers in Macedonia, demonstrate the, the sense that they know that God has given to them, that God is not stingy, that he is generous, and that he is profound in the way in which he became poor so that they might become rich, that their giving is, 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 demonstrates that they believe that central to the character of God, essential to his character, is first and foremost his generosity to us in Christ. Next slide. So, and, and the thing that is so powerful about that is, is that Paul goes on again to say, to echo what he echoed at the end of chapter 7. Remember he said at the end of chapter 7, when I sent Titus to you with the hard letter, I knew you would repent because I bragged on you. I boasted that you would do that. And here again he says, I know that when you think about the gospel, I know those people in Corinth. And I know that the spirit of God is alive in them. And I know when they hear that Jesus loves them. And I know that when they hear that that though he was rich, yet for their sakes became poor. I know that when they hear that, regardless of whatever else may be true about them, they'll be generous. Because there's a God who loves these people. And he's alive in them. Just watch. Just watch. You see, that's that's the whole... the whole driver behind this. And so he says his confidence in Christ spills over into boasting about how uh, the Corinthians will respond. And let's not forget in the middle of all of this that Paul believes this generosity will benefit them. It will increase in a practical way their joy. He says it. I believe this will benefit you. Enjoy. Now, friends, one of the things that, that, that might be true about you this morning is that there's a real lack of joy in you. And maybe there's a lack of joy in you this morning uh, because you haven't heard the, word, the music of the gospel and you haven't heard the sweetness of it. And because you haven't heard the music and the sweetness of the gospel, it has made you chintzy. It has made you tight. And it has made you such that you cannot be generous. Because one of the pathways of experiencing the joy of sins forgiven is that it overflows out of our lives in generosity. And that generosity leads to joy. So just a couple of things to keep in mind. All giving expresses that we have been first given to by God. 
You know, it struck me this morning as I, after the uh, uh, nine o'clock service, that I said what I always say. If you can respond this morning to the generosity and the grace of God to you in Jesus Christ, then give generously. Those aren't just throwaway words. Those aren't just words that we say to, to let somebody off the hook. No, it is imposing. It is imposing to say to people, do you see what God's done for you in Jesus? In light of that, be generous for your joy. Generosity demonstrates the grace of God in our unity. You see, that what's happening here is not just so much an individual thing, even though each individual member sets aside what, what God has, has directed them to do. This is something that they are participating in together, and this is something that, that Paul wants to see as a part of the culture of that local church, that they hear the gospel, they hear about the needs of their brothers and sisters, and the renewing grace of Jesus Christ in them leads them and manifests itself in their lives by generosity. So this generosity demonstrates the grace of God and their unity, that this is something that they're doing together. Next slide. And so giving then is an expression of the supernatural work of God in normal everyday people in making them compelled by the good news of Jesus to look more like their Savior. We talk about looking like sanctification, the growth in grace, the growth in, in the work that God is doing in us as making us look like Jesus. And, and, and often what we think about that is what, what's going to make me look like G, more like Jesus is sinning less, right? Not lying as much, not cheating as much, not stealing as much. And, and, and trust me, as those who live with you and are around you, you should, you should lie, cheat, and still steal less. We all should. That, that would be a good thing. But one of the ways that we miss about this, that we manifest our resemblance to our Savior is that Jesus was generous, that he was first and foremost a giver, and that he is even first and foremost the very gift to us. And as a result of the gift that Jesus is to us, we bear witness that we belong to him and he belongs to us, and we bear witness to the fact that we look like him in our generosity. If you want to look more like Jesus, take his gift, take the richness of his gift, and in turn, allow that gift to flow through you into the lives and hearts of other people. It is a joy and it is a benefit to us to take pleasure in bearing witness to the gospel, the generous gospel of Jesus Christ, by being generous ourselves. Let's pray for that. Lord, we, we need a sense of this today. Thank you so much that uh, you are uh, um, the unqualified giver. And I pray that you would help us today to trust you with that. Pray that you would uh, cause us to uh, examine our hearts and examine our lives. Pray that you would give us joy uh, in sins forgiven and that that joy in sins forgiven would manifest itself in generous giving. Lord, I pray that you would uh, reorient our hearts, remind us again uh, that you are not stingy, uh, but that, uh, Jesus, you have sacrificed much to make us rich in joy and mercy and grace and love. Would you do that work uh, in and among us today?